This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, a lot of policy news coming out of the U.S. So the Biden administration um, has put a bunch of awards out. There are um, There's clean air and cleaner fuel. Um, there's a big push for improving some of that efficiency and reducing um, carbon emissions, you know, getting sustainable airline fuel developed, all these sort of things. So the Biden administration is pushing a lot of money out to the FAA and other uh, agencies to and to some large aerospace companies themselves to help to develop some of these technologies. So we'll talk through a bunch of the implications there. Uh, in our engineering segment, we're going to talk about Northrop Grum- Grumman's new uh, model of an autonomous aircraft that's got some serious speed, um, possibly used for future drone missions. Uh, the Boeing 737 Max is extending wheels, which are really unique and interesting. And we'll talk a little bit about a two megawatt electric motor from Wright. So let's start, Alan, with uh, the FAA. So Biden has, uh, you know, the administration has earmarked some money to the FAA. And as part of their clean program, they're doling a lot of this out to General Electric Aviation, Honeywell, Pratt & Whitney, Boeing, Roar, Delta Tech Ops, GKN Aerospace, MDS Coating. Uh, and America's Phoenix. They're all working on different projects to meet some of these standards uh, for CO2 uh, emissions, you know, hoping to reduce that to by about 20%, uh, NOx uh, emissions by 70%, and noise as well, also particular particulate matter. Um, so give me some of your perspective on this. Obviously, you know, reducing emissions is difficult, um, and you've talked a bunch at length in the past about how maybe the airlines should be not quite in the same boat as, you know, transport other other forms of transportation. Yeah, so the Biden administration essentially handing out checks to uh, some larger aerospace companies is, is kind of unique. Uh, and they can do it under the veil of a lot of different uh, projects at the moment. And the obvious one for them is uh, clean air, right? So they... I think this is sort of indicative of a, of a larger problem that's going on that the airline industry in general has been has been uh, in a financial hurt and they've been asking Congress for some relief for at least a year, maybe a little bit longer now. And they're starting to get it in, the, in different forms. Uh, so there's been several hundred million dollars, over a half a billion dollars doled out so far. And I think more is yet to come. Now, you know, you, you kind of wonder... If GE and Honeywell weren't already on some of these tasks, uh, particularly GE, you know, GE's been pushing cleaner skies for a long time, and and they've been doing a lot of work internally f- forever. Uh, so this is not unusual for them, but I think it's just a, a, a unique way of trying to get funding to these companies, and I. I think the bigger scope is that at what point will the Biden administration start to realize that. Uh, they need to get the airline industry going and pumping cash into it isn't a long-term fix. It's a short-term bandage. Don't you see that, Dan? Like we, we got to get people flying again. And it, 
seems like for some policy reasons, we, we are avoiding it. And in fact, I think it was again this week where um, Dr. Fauci was talking about restricting people's access to travel on airlines and trains and buses and everything else if they didn't have a vaccine card, which is just makes friction. Right? Friction reduces travel. Yeah, and I mean that's that's true. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not sure how all the the pieces fit together because some of this money is going to you know, like you said, these aerospace companies who are developing technologies for the future. Um, obviously, that's good for his agenda because says, hey, we're doing thing, we're we're active, right? Trying to fight against carbon emissions for climate change. Um, so for that, you know, liberal base who's you know really concerned about that. And of course, there's obviously moderates and conservatives who care about the environment as well. Um, you know, that seems like an important part of it. Now, $100 million to those bunch of companies doesn't seem like that much money, um, especially considering, you know, engineers are well paid and, and hard to find people. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how far that money goes on one the one hand. And of course, there's a lot of different layers to this. So they're also, um, besides the aerospace companies, they're giving $482 million uh, in pandemic relief to the greater, um, you know, aviation industry. So some of the airliners trying to keep jobs, um, and trying to keep those companies from cutting jobs. Um, and then of course there's all these other standards that he's implementing. You know, they're trying to get to a greenhouse gas emissions decline of 20% by the end of the decade. So, um, trying to get that down by 2030. Um, I mean, do you feel like that's a realistic goal that, I mean, 20% cut seems pretty big at this point, especially considering, well, like you said, how hard aviation's companies are trying to reduce fuel consumption anyway. Right. Uh, you know, another, even another 10%, I think, is going to be difficult at this point just because of the advances the industry has made over the last 30, 40 years. There's not a lot of uh, extra room to squeeze out, squeeze out efficiencies. You're, you're kind of there, right? Feels like kind of like the Olympics. Like, sprinters are so fast now they're not gonna you know they're not gonna jump from 9.7 to 9.4 like the human capacity is getting pretty close right um is it kind of the same way on, on aircraft or not not so much that's a really good point and do you remember a couple of years ago the discussion and the research done about jesse owens and saying if you had put jesse owens in today's footwear and on today's athletic tracks that he'd be running just as fast as like a Usain Bolt. Like they'd be really close. He would be competitive in that ar arrangement, even though that was 1936 or somewhere in there where he competed. Right. So uh, it sort of has the same feel to it. Like, yeah, we're, we, we have this existing technology. There's only so much you can squeeze out of it. So you're just basically changing the the track shoes, so to speak, the, the core of it is still pretty much the same. There's only so, so many things you can do there. Yeah, he was incredible. He, I mean, he like obliterated people back then. Like he was so much faster than the other, the, the common man of his day. But yeah, and of course, Usain Bolt is a great example because he seems like the perfect specimen of a human being to run as fast. I mean, long levers, incredibly explosive. I mean, like he's built to sprint as much as any human's ever been. Um, and so like improving on Usain Bolt seems really hard, right? I mean, like he's the fastest human in the world. It's like, how do you get better than that? Right. Um, cause training is pretty modernized. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of parallels between the two worlds, but I mean, are any of these fuels going to make that big of a difference? I mean, I don't know the, and we've talked a little bit about some of the sustainable fuels, but, um, are they really going to be able to put the performance 
in the same category or, and you've talked about safety. Like you don't want to just like throw some new fuel through a system because in a car, you know, if the ethanol mix or something, for example, doesn't work, the car rolls to a stop, right? But planes can't, can't glide down to a stop, obviously. Right. Well, I, I think it, it comes down to energy density and the fuels, right? And some of the sustainable fuels have less energy density, means we've got to carry more of them, which means overall they become, can become less efficient. So is it really worth the development and the extra cost for something that's less efficient? Or do you just stick with what you have right now and try to make it more efficient? That's, that's a really good question because I think with the advent of the electric motor, you know, at what point do we just say, all right, we, we've, we've honed the jet A fuel market as best as we're ever going to get it or really close to it. Maybe we can squeak out another 2 3%. Let's just say that. And then do we then... You know, whatever aircraft we can transition over to electric, we transition it to, to overall the whole industry is a mission profile. That may be the way that it's accomplished, but I don't like the way that this is going in the, in the sense of it's like an edict from on high and engineers are just supposed to uh, salute to this uh, bureaucracy that's creating an emission standard out of whole cloth. That doesn't feel right. And as you can see, as a result of that, the aircraft industry as a whole is really suffering and has not been able to get off its feet and it needs to because there's a lot of it's, it's almost like the automotive industry there are a lot of jobs signed up in up in aviation right now yeah yeah and of course um you know the reporting from the ap news explains that only 2.4 million gallons we talked about this in the past as well only 2.4 million gallons of sustainable aviation fuel were consumed or were produced um as of 2019 and that's in comparison to the airlines burning 21.5 billion gallons. So 2.4 million into 21.5 billion is 0.01% of the supply. So to get that up to the point where it's you know significantly higher seems like a really big step in, like you said, that nine-year period. Because who's going to build the infrastructure and the, and the plants to produce that amount of fuel? And like you said, is it going to be up to par? And like you said, is it going to be more economical in the grand scheme? Because you start to think of carbon, the total carbon cost of, and that was like, like we've discussed, that was part of the problem with ethanol it was like, people like, well, okay, so we're using corn, this from corn, but we're also having to truck this and do more, like we have to process more. There's like, there's so many more things involved where it didn't seem, and I don't know that what, what's ultimately happened with ethanol, but it seems like it never, it just like sort of quietly lost favor and I'm, I'm no i know it's still used in the midwest but you don't see it very much yeah right right <laughs> yeah and i think this is i think i feel like it's really complicated because i didn't know a lot of this and and i think when you start to think of the emissions that apply you, you just think that oh, okay well emission standards should blanketly apply well, blanketly is a word but i'm using it as a word it should apply in a blanket state sta uh, you know, in a blanket manner to all forms of transportation like why should aircraft get a pass over trains or cars you know etc but to your point being a, a, an engineer who knows the the industry you know very intimately there's just a lot more context to that like you said like they've been trying to reduce emissions forever because it's good for business and that's probably the best push to any of them is like hey this is good for business we want this just as much as anyone else does and then to say hey well you have to do this like like the cars do that's just like where I feel like people, they miss the, miss the greater point. And like you said, the energy density thing is a really interesting, not public 
you know, the pr public are not privy to that. They don't understand quite that. Yeah, you might have to burn 20% more fuel to get the same output. And is that is that better? Yeah, it's 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 really complicated, which I, I I wonder if they dive into that enough trying to explain like this is why we're doing this when they're trying to push some of this legislation, even if it's just suggested sort of targets. Right. I, I think the aviation community itself sort of knows these things. But whereas we see it in our renewable energy podcast, when we talk about things like energy density and the overall cost of energy creation, uh, on the aviation side, that never really gets discussed discussed in public, which is weird. Uh, so I, I think we're going to get to that point, eventually going to get to that point when push comes to shove and, and the administration, the bureaucracy starts to push, the, the, the aviation aerospace industry is really going to push back and say, hey, look, this is not going to be a long-term solution, maybe a temporary solution, but it's not going to be a long-term solution. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the the funding that's been earmarked for um, aviation aircraft companies. So it's not just like commercial airliners, but for example, the largest recipient of some of this government funding is Spirit Air Systems, which makes fuselages and other parts for Boeing. They're a big supplier, and they're in Kansas, uh, you know, your hometown. So they're going to get seventy five and a half million, which the government says will protect three thousand plus jobs. Um, so, I mean, is that a good move or is this, like you said, a, a myopic move? I mean, what, what do you think this is going to, what, what's the, what do you think the long-term and short-term implications will be? Yeah, it, that there's a, there's just an announcement out today talking about this. Uh, there's about a hundred million dollars going to the state of Kansas and different, uh, aerospace associated affiliated companies. Uh, 75 million is going to Spirit Aerosystems, which is in Wichita and other 15 million is going to, uh, Learjet. Uh, so there's there's 90 million out of the hundred. The remaining 10 kind of gets dispersed around to different smaller aviation related businesses. Uh, the the emphasis there is on jobs and retaining jobs. So I think there's around 4,000 5,000 jobs that say they're going to be able to keep employed, which is a big deal, right? 5,000 jobs essentially in Wichita, Kansas, is a big deal. I guess the question is, how long is this going to go on? And how, how much longer can we sort of tie this over with just pouring cash into these companies? Because either Boeing's going to get up to production and Spirit's going to be making money or, or they're not. Um, Learjet's in a little bit of a different mode because they essentially shut down all aircraft op aircraft production. Um, the last Learjet, I think, comes out in the next couple of weeks, I think. So... They're they're in a little bit of a different struggle, but all the 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 smaller aviation companies are relying upon the aviation industry as a whole to be flying in and modifying and upgrading and doing all the things that happen there, and it's just not happening at the rate that they need it to. So it feels like sort of an inside job a little bit. Kansas has a very strong delegation when it comes to aviation and pushing the FAA or the Commerce Department to kick out funding towards their particular their state. Uh, if you look at the way that it's described in some of the articles, it says the the Commerce Department, is the Commerce Department uh, reached out to the companies that could be helped by this funding and made sure that they applied. So you see this sort of like this little inside chain, like uh, the phone's ringing. Hey, we're going to give you $50,000. Would you like it? <laughs> yeah, we're struggling. Sure. We'll, sure. We'll take 50 grand, right? Uh, that's the kind of thing that's happened there. And that just is plays into the larger frame of, 
hey, when are we going to get off our backsides and get life moving again? And as of yet, I haven't seen good markers on that. It seems like over the last week or so, the the COVID response and the Biden administration's push to mandate vaccinations is not going to help that situation any. Uh, particularly, most of these corporations that we're talking about in Kansas have over 100 employees. Yeah, so that that's going to be a fight. Well, and of course, on the other side of it, I mean, I know employers are really struggling to get employees at this time, right? So, you know, uh, was, was it Spirit that was struggling, that had to start canceling flights? I think a couple airlines had to cancel some flights or trim back because of staffing shortages. And I think that's some of the some of the fears behind unvaccinated employees, where they don't want to have another, like they can't afford any more losses. Um, so, I, so I get it from that end. Um, but you're right, anytime you make more friction, um, it's going to make it more difficult for people to travel and then bottleneck to some degree, but it's hard to say how much. Um, yeah, I mean, and I guess we'll we'll see what COVID holds in store for the winter. Um, but a lot of this stuff we're just not going to know the result of until we kind of get through it, unfortunately. Probably just a lot of hindsight will be the best that we'll have. But Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So those all, but I mean, are you optimistic by the amount of money that's been doled out? I mean, what, what's your overall, I mean, considering all these different, uh, financial awards, was this a, was this a net positive or sort of neutral or you give it a thumbs down? I think it's at best a, a neutral at this point. What you would like to see is, uh, the competitive nature of the aviation marketplace start to kick in again, where spirit is competing with the GKN and, you know, all those big Honeywell is competing with Collins and you're having those big colossal battles for market share. We're not having those at, at, at the moment. We're just like everybody's just letting orders come in. Everybody's stable. We're not trying to do too much. We're not trying to expend too much effort on any particular project. And let's let's reduce our cash burn. Let's not do much in terms of advertising. Let's just kind of lay low for a while. And that that has a similar feel to what I remember from the late 70s into parts of the 90s, uh, into the early 2000s again, which is the aviation industry knows how to, to, to conserve cash and to try to survive. And it feels like we're in that mode right now. And they'll stay there for a while. And the, 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 op, the, the flip side of this, which is um, not really thought about when this happens, is those aviation companies aren't really hiring, going to hire too many new engineers. And so it creates this little lull in the employment base. So you have these uh, wide spans of engineering age groups and employee age groups in, in terms of line workers and that sort of thing, where they're, they're in these discrete modes of there's a group of people roughly the same age that were during the last upturn, and then there's a tenure delay, and there's another group of people that are all hired at the same time. So you don't have this continuity. And I think that in itself hurts aviation more than the economy does because it just you you just have these really uh, unique um, internal uh, machinations that happen because of the the span in engineering time and things aren't handled down I don't think things are handed down like they would be in a sort of continually growing increasing uh, business cycle. All right, moving on, uh, we got a couple of things to talk about on the engineering side today. First, let's start with Northrop Grumman. Um, they've unvo- um, unveiled art for their Model 401 and Model 437 aircraft, which will be autonomous, that they hope could be the Air Force's next big uh, generation of drones, you know, and accompany uh, manned planes into battle. This is that sort of 
hybrid human and AI potential, um, you know, force in the skies. That seems like it makes a lot of sense. So the model, uh, 437 will have a 3000 mile range, which is crazy. Um, and it's also going to be extremely fast. I think getting as high as uh, Mach 0.85. Um, Alan, what what features strike uh, you know strike you here? It looks a lot like any other almost supersonic jet. That sort of really stealthy design, a lot like the Predator. Um, but what what sticks out to you here as far as the engineering? Well, I think the range does, and the ability to be stealthy, which is automatic at this point not, not even discussions about that it just is you can tell by the shape of the aircraft that it's going to be has some stealthy features just by the shape alone and what when you take the human out of the aircraft you also rip out a number of aircraft systems that have to be there flight instrument displays uh, an oxygen system a pressurization system uh um, just all the feedback stuff that a pilot requires, you can just rip all that stuff out, thereby reducing the weight, making the aircraft more aerodynamic, and therefore increasing its range and times time in, in service. So that changes everything, right? If you can get the pilot out of the loop, it's not so much a reaction time thing as much as it is just an efficiency piece of, of the aircraft performance. And so Northrop Grumman's been doing this since, you know, pre-Global Hawk, right? So Global Hawk is a massive aircraft, <laughs> it just is. And they, they've flown that thing at 70,000 feet plus uh, halfway around the world autonomously. So they have the technology to do this. I think what's, this is a really weird spot right now, I think for the Air Force, don't you don't you see this too, Dan? Like that, like not having a pilot there feels weird. And so they still want to have a pilot in control of the of the autonomous aircraft. It's a that's a weird setup because you wouldn't really need the pilot out there anymore. You wouldn't think. Are you talking about the pilot like a, an accompanying jet near it, or are you talking about an actual pilot manning the controls back at the base? Well, well, they may need somebody on the ground. I, I think that is still likely to occur. The question is, do you need somebody like in an F thirty five out there? And you're right. Do you need some, this person out there? administering all this activity that your uh, your other autonomous aircraft that are flying in formation behind you do you need do you need that f-35 out there I, I think right now the argument is yes but i'm not sure that's going to last very long yeah because it, i mean if this was like a helicopter strike or something for example there's a lot more you can visually see like you could assess the situation um you know there's a human element that could be involved um Whereas at that height, I mean, you can't imagine like what decision can a human make that's not going to be based on radar or any other sort of instrumentation that it doesn't really need interpretation from the cockpit itself. Like you could interpret any of those pieces of you know instrumentation from thousand thousand miles away in in your base. So yeah, I guess it is it is unclear because it's not like he's going to be like, come on guys, no, it's fine. Or like, no, we need to pull back. It's you're tens and tens of thousands of feet up in the air. Yeah, I mean, the, the computer is going to do pretty much most of the seeing at that point, I, I would assume. Right. Is there a Top Gun situation at all? Are we, are we quote-unquote, dogfighting aircraft anymore? I think the answer is no. I think the, the key right now is that we, we uh, defend ourselves and, and attack from miles and miles away, uh, which 
you know, we can you can argue about the the ethics of all that, but that's what's happening right now. So you're not having those enga- quote unquote engagements where you're shooting machine guns at one another. That doesn't happen. Uh, m- maybe air to ground that will occur, but air to air really hasn't happened in a long time. So, you know, how many more pilots are we going to need in in flying F thirty five? Is a really good question because it's autonomy is happening so fast in the air and on on the ground in automobiles that you kind of wonder how much longer it's going to be. And even little tiny eVTOL companies, uh, you know, they're not Lockheed's, right? They're not Boeing's. These these small eVTOL companies have been flying these electric aircraft autonomously for years at this point, relatively safely. So it just makes you wonder, you know, how long the pilot's going to be in this thing. Yeah, and of course, we've talked about DARPA and their work, and, and their, they've had these AI dogfight simulations where they've done well um, when dogfighting against a, a real pilot um, in simulators. But you're right. It, it seems like that day is, is pretty far gone. So we'll have to keep, keep an eye on this and see how it tends to evolve. So another interesting piece of engineering is the Boeing 737 MAX 10, uh, their wheel system. So the MAX 10 is 1.6 meters longer than the MAX 9. And apparently this little little boost in fuselage length is important because now it's going to change the geometry of when the plane comes down to land and Boeing was worried about um, potentially smacking the tail on the uh, on the runway. So the landing gear has a really interesting mechanism where it'll actually extend to make the plane effectively stand taller to give it a little extra clearance. Alan, it seems like there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of engineering that even goes into the bathroom door latch. Um, what are some of the features in this incredibly important mechanism that helps these extend out um, while being just as durable, obviously, to, like I think landing gear is, is incredible that you think of this huge, heavy plane with such forces that these wheels and these little extensions can handle all that and never snap off because they can never snap off even one time and they don't. So take us through some of the, the engineering here. Well, it's interesting because the Max 10 has gotten so long that on takeoff on some of those longer airplanes, like the 757, some of the and the stretch DC9s, MD80s are so long on takeoff when they pull pull back on the stick that actually the tail can strike the runway. And you don't want to do that. In fact, some airplanes have like skid plates back there and they have these tail strike sensors. It looks like a little whisker off the back end. It's like basically a switch that says, hey, you've hit the, the, the asphalt on the runway. Don't do that. And we need to look inspect the aircraft because you can you can bend a fuselage. You hit the, the runway hard enough with the tail. So uh, what Boeing has done is that they've essentially ex- extended the length of the landing gear by about 10 inches. But it's a, it's like it expands and grows. Um, and it, 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 I need to look at the mechanism a little bit more. It seemed like on takeoff, uh, as, as the aircraft lifted off, it, it, this extension would kind of pop out and help prevent the tail from striking the runway. And, and But the problem is, obviously, is when you extend the landing gear, you got to pull the landing gear up into the fuselage somehow. And, and they wanted to keep the same volume that the previous 737s in the same landing gear area and not have to change wing spars and all the structure so that the mechanism actually collapses that the, the nine or ten inches collapses back so the, the landing gear can still fit in the same hole in the wing so to speak that makes a lot of sense now it's it's funny that you know there's when you think about the max 10 and some of these lar- longer 737s you don't think about stuff like that all the little engineering changes and I, i've 
seen some of the other Max 10 changes and, and some of the Max changes, and you wouldn't think that Boeing would hit some of these areas. Mostly, it looks like some of them for weight savings and maybe some manufacturing savings. Like they retouched a lot of the airplane that as a consumer still looks like a 737, you know, still seems to fly like a 737. But there is a lot of engineering that goes into these these model um, improvements, I'll say, and that you just don't get to see. So it is, and I think it is interesting that Boeing actually created a little video for this and that's helpful, right? I think as one of the things that Boeing's going to get killed on here recently is saying, well, the engineers aren't doing the job properly. Well, they need to they need to make some puff pieces that say, hey, yeah, we're doing some cool stuff and we are working really hard at it. And it helps. I think that kind of public relations message helps them because they, they could use all the help they could get right now. Don't you think so? Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're only taking flack and you're never getting any pats on the back, your job becomes a, a grind for sure. And they do do some pretty amazing work. And yeah, like I said, I don't people there's so many things on the on an airplane that we all take for granted. And the landing gear is really like these tiny little wheels hold up this entire gigantic plane landing at hundreds of miles per hour. Um, well, I guess they're probably what in the, in the single, like 150. What, what's 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 touchdown? Yeah, speed 100 ish miles per hour. Run 100 ish miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like such crazy force, and this little mechanism keeps the whole thing from 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 going down. So, yeah, hats off to the the Boeing engineers. Pretty pretty neat. Um, and definitely check out the YouTube video. We'll link to it in the description below. Uh, so last on the docket today is Wright, which is a startup, W-R-I-G-H-T. They say they have a, uh, a two megawatt electric uh, engine that they're hoping can really change and be a big part of the, uh, the switch to electric power and, and aircraft. Now, they're definitely going to start smaller, they've said. Um, they're not trying to you know, immediately power 737s. And, you know, even that's a small commercial airliner. Um, but this is a two megawatt motor that they say produces about 2,700 horsepower equivalent. And it's the, the most powerful motor designed by a factor of two. Of course, it's designed. It's not, you know, out there yet. Um, and they also say it's going to be very, very light. So it's in lab testing. So it, it does exist. Um, and they're just working on testing. Alan, how, how does this design strike you? And, and where do we feel like the future of electric aviation stands here well the interesting thing about this right design and some other electric motor designs that are more recent is that they're going roughly down the same pathway which are in a in a motor sense they're permanent magnet motors and they're trying to get the electronics to drive them as hard as they can now there's some trade-offs here that have to be made in terms of the operating voltage you want to run the system at and how you can control that. But the, the key is here, you're dumping massive amounts of energy in a very small space. Like these motors, if 2,300 horsepower is what you said, 2,700 horsepower. Now think of what that would be in terms of an internal combustion engine. That's a big engine, right? That's like something used on a on, on like two race cars jammed together, it would be twenty that kind of that kind of horsepower. But yet, it's probably the size. It's less than the size of one racing engine, right? It's roughly that size. So the energy density is really high, 
And that means there's a lot of heat that you have to bleed off of these engines. So the, the, the issue is not so much that can you generate that kind of, of, of thrust and horsepower. The question is, can you cool it fast enough that the thing doesn't melt down? That's a bigger problem right now. And there's a lot of work on the thermodynamics of these motors, making sure they have extreme amount of airflow through them making sure that they're monitoring the temperature of the motors so that they don't over basically cook themselves because you can't do that on the, with some of these high power electric motors you can you can definitely do that so if you look at the right design it looks like a big thermodynamics problem <laughs> they, they have a lot of metal surfaces a lot of cooling holes they must be forcing air into the motor they may have motors that actually cool the bigger motor to, just to try to drive air through it because what do you do on the ground and this is the, i think this is the bigger issue with these what do you do on the ground when you're taxiing around and you don't have a lot of airflow through the motor like you're in flight can you cool can you cool it off what happens on takeoff do you over temp and just rolling down the runway and you're at max thrust but you don't have max airflow can you tolerate that kind of stuff so the the the, the kicker here is we're going to see a lot of these high powered permanent magnet motors start popping out but the industry is going to develop, develop around it are the thermodynamics engineers that are going to be solving a lot of these airflow cooling problems. Liquid cooling will be in play in a lot of these motors and air airflow uh, will be in, be in play. So it's, it's a lot of engineering challenges ahead. Well, two things. Number one, that makes me think of this time when I was coming back uh, mostly across the country with a car that's radiator was, I didn't know what was wrong with it, but it was not working. So if I was in a residential area going slow or stopped, I just watched my temperature go up to the red line. I was like, so I had to stay at speed. So when I was on the highway, it could cool itself. Um, and But when I slowed down or I stopped or I was at a red light, I was just like, come on, change, come on, change, got to change, got to change, got to get green so I can cool this car off again. Um, and then eventually got it replaced. But um, yeah, so I feel your, <laughs> I feel your pain on the runway there. Um, but number two, I mean, with the i mean the fact that they won't have to carry so much fuel on board that weight savings i mean can they use that for like a really serious huge fish tank like air like water cooling system I mean, you see, like even you see some computers that have and lots of servers have water cooled not water cooled but liquid cooling um i mean is that something that can support this where it's like hey we saved x amount of pounds on fuel weight so we're gonna we have a really insane cooling system um, I mean, is that trade-off going to happen or is that maybe a little too ambitious? Yeah, no, there's a lot of trade-offs going on right now, um, particularly the larger electric aircraft designs, which is, you know, how much horsepower can I generate? How much cooling system can I tolerate in terms of the weight, right? And it's going to be a liquid cooling system, a lot of them. And then how much how much energy can my batteries maximally deliver for this motor can I even drive it hard enough with the batteries that I have? Can I deliver enough current? And do I need to be operating at a higher voltage to reduce the losses in cables? I mean, there's a lot of weird uh, engineering analysis that are going on that haven't been done before. Because you're right, Dan. I mean, the thing about batteries is you, you have this sort of fixed pack and the weight never changes. Versus fuel, as you burn it off, the aircraft gets lighter and that's it advantageous. So you actually get more efficient as you burn off fuel. So you kind of, after like half a flight or you, you cooked off half the battery's energy, you got this dead weight, right? And you have to carry that dead weight around. So 
there the dynamics change a lot versus a, a traditional internal combustion engine or jet airframe what what do you do with this weight and how do you manage this weight and are the batter the on the batteries carrying enough energy density? The answer is always no, right? <laughs> you always like to double the energy density if you could, because they're, if you, 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 you're going to have a fixed amount of weight you can tolerate. I think that's what's happening on the batteries, and then everything else is sort of designed downhill from that. But it's going to lead to a lot of different aircraft designs, and I think, like I'm saying, the thermodynamic designs are going to get really uh, intricate, they're going to be little tiny design details. They're going to make these these electric motors work or not work, and we're going to see a lot of uh, development in those areas. So, making electricity go down wires and turn motors it's relatively simple. Cooling all that is complicated. Well, on that note, we're going to end today's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, whether you listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or if you watch us on YouTube. And if you have the moment, please leave us a review of the show. We'd greatly appreciate it. As you know, reviews always help drive new listeners and convince them to take a chance on our podcast. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.